So we are going through uh, our distinctives as a church, and uh, we're on number four here uh, this Mother's Day, and I'm just going to jump right in. Here's what our fourth distinction, which we call family discipleship, says. I'll read it for you. We desire families to function according to God's word. We affirm that both singleness and marriage are distinct blessings from God. In regards to marriage, we disciple men and women towards the unique, complementary roles designed by God. Parents are to be the primary shepherds in the discipleship of their children, with the church taking a supplemental role. That's what we believe. That's in our DNA and our blood as a church. And there's lots of directions we can take this. As you can tell, we could um, talk about the Bible's high esteem for singleness, Uh, While being sensitive to its challenges, we could talk about how men and women are to interact in this complementary way within marriage. But this morning, we're going to focus our time on that last sentence about parents shepherding children. It is our burden that we would uh, grow that that sense of responsibility and joy as a church. It's not just because it's Mother's Day that we're focusing on that, but that's where we're going to focus. Two quick disclaimers. Before we jump into our text, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6 this morning, uh, the first disclaimer is for those of you who don't have children in your home. The second is going to be for parents. So for those who don't have children in your home, uh, this may be a time that you're tempted to check out. And so if if you're single, you have adult children, you you weren't able to have children, if you're a teenager, um, you might think that this morning isn't going to serve you. And here's three reasons why you should not check out this morning. Okay, number one. All of us have a responsibility to help kids grow. The raw materials of discipling don't require a title. And parents do have this, a couple of advantages where there's more time with the children and there's this authority that the scripture gives parents. But we all have time with, with kids and each of us can earn a degree of authority, a relational kind of authority with children. I thank God that what God has intended for parents to do primarily can be done by others secondarily. So being great grandpas and grandmas and tutors and teachers and encouraging body and substitute mentors, all those things are necessary for the equipping of children. Notice that our distinctive doesn't say that parents are the only shepherds. It says that they are primary. It says the church has a supplemental role, which means we have a, we have a job in that. Now, we're not saying we're some big collective parent, okay? But we're also saying we're not off the hook either. Because every family has dysfunction. And one of the ways that the church helps the family is by coming alongside them and helping to see that and navigate that and walk through that. So that's the first reason. All of us have a responsibility to help kids grow. The second reason is we should know what the Bible says about things that don't directly pertain to us. So I'm not single anymore, but it it would be important for me to know what the Bible says about singleness so that I could be of help to those who are in that situation. It's easier to relate to people in our own life stage. Yes, that's true. But it's necessary to be able to sympathize and minister to people who are not in your stage of life. In fact, God designs for spiritual maturity to cross over from one life stage to another one. 
So young marrieds, you need you married veterans, and people with kids need to make room in their lives for people who are single. Teenagers, you need to talk to older people. And it's our desire that we wouldn't become a church that clumps. You know what I mean? That clumps, but that we, we benefit from the way that God has designed for a diverse body to interact with one another. So that's why those of you who don't have children should listen in. For you parents, a couple of things. First, parenting is really, 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 really hard, okay? But sometimes in the church, we can make it sound like it should be very easy. And I would venture to guess that most of you parents feel your flaws keenly. Kids are a major investment in self-awareness, aren't they? They're like little mirrors walking around, and you see yourself through them. And so we can be perpetually discouraged because of how our sin is exposed. So parenting will drive you either towards self-righteousness where you you just know what everyone needs to do or it'll drive you towards humility. So if that's you this morning, we're talking talking to you. The family and, and family discipleship is near and dear to the heart of God and so our enemy hates it. And it's more like hand-to-hand battle um, than it is what people make it look like on Facebook. Parenting is hard, okay? So we're also saying that. Secondly, parenting methods are different than parenting principles. So I'm not going to give you three steps to perfect parenting because there aren't three steps to perfect parenting this morning. You can and should parent differently than I do because your kids are different people than my kids, And in parenting discussions, we must distinguish between methods and principles. It's important that children are disciplined. That's important, right? That's a biblical principle. How that works out in the home is not what I'm necessarily pushing for this morning. Okay, So you can breastfeed, you can bottle feed, you can sleep your child on their back or on their front, you can vaccinate or not vaccinate, you can blend up kale, or you can feed them Lucky Charms all day long. And I don't care about those things this morning, okay? Those things are method types of things. I'm not saying they're unimportant. They are. We need to work through those things. But on a biblical uh, overarching level, that's where the church needs to to focus our energies is on principles, not on things that cause mommy wars in our day. Maybe we'd be different than that. So with those disclaimers, let's get to the main question and what we're after this morning. And that's this. What does Scripture have to say about parents shepherding their children? What is that big picture that we need to know in order to shepherd our families or, or to know how to come alongside families or even to, to do some of that spiritual parenting that, that Tim was talking about? So let's read together Deuteronomy chapter 6. Would you stand with me uh, if you're physically able in reverence for God's word? And I'm going to read uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 to us. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord." who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God is in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. Amen. That's God's word for us. You may be seated. We're going to hit four things in this sermon, and we're going to apply and talk about the implications of these things as we go. We're going to talk about the why, what, when, and how of discipling children. Obviously, more time could be given. There's tons of stuff here in this chapter. We won't be able to get to it all, but we're going to have to hit a few important things for us this morning. So first, let's consider the why. What's the motive for discipling children? So just so you know the background on this chapter, Deuteronomy is basically Moses' last sermon series. Israel's getting ready to enter the promised land, and he, he wants to charge them and set them up uh, because he's not going in. And so he's summarizing their history. He's going to give them a large portion of the law one last time as they kind of enter this new phase so that they can follow God in obedience. And like any good preacher, he wants it to stick. He wants it to stick, not just for them, but for their sons, and he says, and their sons' sons. You can tell that his burden is in verses 1 through 3 is that, it, that they would keep the law, that they would obey it. But let's, let's ask ourselves, what's the motive of that? What's the motive of, of obedience? 
What's the motive when it comes to discipling kids? Two things. First, who God is. That's, what, that's a motive for discipling them. And then also, second, our desire to bless our children. So who God is. Moses says their obedience to the law will be the result of fearing him. God is to be obeyed because God is great. And he's full of majesty and wisdom and power. And he's worthy of their obedience. It was just a chapter earlier that, that Moses reminds him of the scene in Mount Sinai where God manifests his presence with thunder and smoke and earthquake. There's a sense of awe of God. Moses refers to God giving them the Ten Commandments and in chapter 5, verses 23 through 26, it says, And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? There is a sense that we are to be obedient to God because God is amazing and full of power and full of glory. And we're to obey him for that reason. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have had to have an obedient seminar the day after Mount Sinai. Because people would see him in his glory. And naturally, our, our move when we are in awe of God is to obey him. And that's the desire. So when he says to teach our children, to instruct them diligently, there's a sense of awe that drives that. Moses says in our text... That in verse 4, that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He alone is God. There's no one like him. And his character leads out. It's the first thing that we consider. And that obedience just naturally follows from that. You'll notice in chapter 4, if you read 34 through 40, that there's this big description of what God is like. And then after describing all the power and the wisdom and the work of God, then in verse 40 it says, Therefore... You shall keep his statutes and his commandments. Like now that you've seen what God is like. So who God is motivates our discipleship of kids. You know, sometimes we overcomplicate the motive for discipling kids in the Christian faith. But one of the reasons, it's so profound and so simple. Uh, I heard a man say the other day, he said, the reason why I want to worship with my family in my home is because God is worthy of worship. It's not so I can feel better about my parenting or I can make sure that my kids, those are, those are side things that occur, but, but God is worthy of worship more than just in this time that we gather on Sunday morning. This is why Moses can tell them to obey the law all the days of their life, it says, right? Complete and total obedience is the response to knowing him. So listen to this. So calling our kids to a kind of a partial, half-hearted, uh, compartmentalized faith is saying something about the worth of God, isn't it? Say, so, well, you can just kind of find a little niche in your life for him and you just keep him there and serve him there. That's saying something about what God's worthy of. So we disciple our kids because who God is, but we disciple our kids because we want to bless our kids too. God's our first reason, but we desire to serve them and to bless them. This just, there's, there's 
this language of that it may go well with you all throughout the book of Deuteronomy. It's like God is just saying, there's, there's reward in this. There's reward in this. There's blessing in this. There's life in this. Chapter 4, verse 40. There to obey that it may go well with you and with your children after you. 529. God says, oh, that they had a mind as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it may go well with them. 533, that you may live, that it may go well with you. 618, that it may go well with you, and you may go in and take possession of the good land. 624, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive. Where do we get this idea that obedience isn't attached to blessing? That obedience uh, is just this half-hearted thing you just got to do when God is saying, I'm desiring to bless you, I'm desiring to provide, to show my goodness to you. So God wants to motivate the disciples of children by blessing kids as they obey, you know, in the Ten Commandments. And if you look in chapter 5, and it says in verse 16, Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and then it may go well with you in the land. He's incentivizing kids to obey, but then there's this hunger in parents to bless their kids that God is going to satisfy by parents redirecting their children to God, the source of all blessing. So God is, is blessing kids when they obey. God is blessing parents and satisfying this hunger to bless their kids. In the New Testament, it says, you know, if a son asks for bread, uh, what lame dad is going to give him a, a rock or something that's not going to feed them or help them? No one does that because parents desire to bless their kids. So our motive for discipling our kids is first and foremost, God is worthy Our kids exist for him, not for us. We disciple kids so that God would be known and worshipped for who he is and so that our children will be blessed. So just in applying this, let's prayerfully revisit our motives for discipling our kids. What's motivating you to do what you do? Maybe a simple way of discerning that is as a parent, would be to consider when you're proud of them or when you're embarrassed by them. Are you proudest of them when they comply or embarrassed most when they resist you? Obedience is a good thing, as we said, but are you motivated to parent out of self-interest, out of self-fulfillment? Are you proudest of them when they accomplish something and embarrassed when they fail at something else? Again, accomplishments are not a bad thing, but is that sense of accomplishment driving your parenting? Is your kid some kind of compensation for inadequacy in you? Are you proudest of them when they behave well in public or embarrassed most when they disobey in public? Kids should obey in public as in private, but is that approval of others starting to mix in with your motive for discipling your kids? Just a thought. Prayerfully revisit. Why am I doing this again? <laughs> What's the goal? What's the purpose? Second, let's look at the goal of discipling children. Okay, in chapter 6, verse 5. We looked at the why, at the motive. Now let's just talk about the what. What's the goal? So what is the point? That's a really important thing to know as a parent. What are you shooting for? When they're headed out of your driveway for that last time, what do you hope is true of them in that moment? Now, we parents, we have a lot of desires, right? I hope my kid knows how to clean his clothes, and I hope 
my kid knows how to read well and how to choose relationships wisely and how to prioritize things. I have a lot of desires for our kid. But if you had to pick one, the supreme one, the banner over everything else, what would it be? I think 6-5 is it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Because there is only one true God, then that true God gets all of our total and complete love and obedience. And our hearts are His. The Bible doesn't know anything about this idea of heartless obedience. Even in a place like Deuteronomy, over and over again, God says, with all your heart and with all your soul, in this book, 429, 1012, 1113, 133, 36, I could list 15 of these. Make sure that it's with all your heart, it's with all your soul. 6.5, I think, is the goal of parenting, that our children might increasingly love God with their whole being. You know, parenting can be so complicated, but that's, that's a, I'm not saying it's easy, but it, I think it does come back to a very simple thing. Cultivating a sincere love for God. I think that's the nutshell of it. I think that's what we're after. And that's why other people can contribute to that effort, right? So, wait a minute. How could it be that simple? Are you really sure? But if you think about it, if, if a person has a love for God, then that produces a love for others, doesn't it? And if a person has a love for God, then that means they're going to be obeying God, right? As Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you have a love for God, that's going to result in transformation by God. So if our kids have a sincere love for God, they're in a great spot. This is why it's so important in the book of Deuteronomy, the word remember. Remember. It's interesting. Remember what God did for you in Egypt. Remember what it was like in the wilderness. Remember when you defeated that king and you, you have this land. And Remember, remember, remember. Why is remembering so important? What does it stir in the heart of God's people? Love for him. Remembering what God has done, remembering who he is, stirs love for him again. And that's what a parent does. They stir love for God, and they do that in front of their children. And their children notice what's lovely about God. That is the what. So in applying this, if you're involved in the discipling of children, what's your goal? What are you really shooting for? Is it keeping you know, their rooms clean? Is it graduating college? Is it picking a good spouse? Is it avoiding the mistakes that you made? There's lots of things that can distract us. And what do, what do our greatest desires for our kids reveal about our own perspective? Have we begun to subtly build our own kingdom instead of his? You know, sadly, if, if I were to be honest, and I'm going to be with you, there are days that my whole desire in life is that my kids would just pick up their socks. Like, some days it feels like if they could do that, life would be perfect. Like, honestly, it's, it's sick and it's twisted and it's totally wrong. But as parents, we just get blinded, don't we? You start just obsessing about little things or about... Uh, things that just bug you or irritate you. And so we have to constantly recalibrate and remember the goal. We're cultivating a love for God. That's, our, that's the desire. What about the when? When does this happen? The timing and the content. And, and how do children actually develop a love for God? How does that happen? 
Well, one of the ways that God forms love of himself in kids is through parents. It's not the only way, thank God, right? But it's one of the ways that he's chosen to do that. Transferring loves in a family is, is relatively easy in some circumstances. So there's certain musicians that I love that are playing a lot of times in our house, and, and our kids have, have grown fond of that. My wife loves the Warriors, and that's like starting to transfer to the rest of us, right? And so we watch the Warriors play. I love cantaloupe, and that's, that's kind of like in process. I don't know where that one is, but, but as parents, we love things, and we love them in front of our kids, and our kids go, oh, that's, that's worth loving. And so they do that. But how is a love for God transferred? How does that work? In verse 6, look what it says. And these words that I command you today, referring back to the law, shall be on your heart. Parents must love what they want their kids to love. Parents go first. And wanting your kids to love something that you're half-hearted about is a really tough sell. It's like trying to convince your kids to keep their rooms clean when yours is always a mess. Or if you want them to, to love learning, but you never pick up a book or you never take up interests. If you want your children to love God, but he plays a minor role in your life, the reality of their Christian faith is going to be hard to sync with that. There's a lot of folks who come through the doors of our church who want their kids to grow up in the church. And that's a great desire. We say amen to that. But you can tell it's kind of in this detached way that I don't, you know, they don't necessarily think that they need but asking kids to find lovely what you consider okay doesn't work. That's not how we commend things to one another, is it? Like, oh, the movie was so-so, but you should really go see it. The restaurant was okay, but make sure to make... Res- I mean, it just doesn't work that way. So the law, is in verse 6, has to be on the heart of the parent. And then it has to translate. In verse 7, it says, You shall teach them diligently to your children. See, love of God translates into informing your kids about why he's lovely. It says diligently, with persistently, with focus, with intentionality. Donald Whitney says, You don't grow an oak by occasional spectacular exposure to the elements. It is day after day, year after year, without noticing change that those elements do their work. It's a slow and steady process. It's a diligent process. Now, at first, this might sound daunting. You might be thinking, I've got to draw up lesson plans for my kids. How is that going to work? How is that possible? But you notice what this text says, where this happens. It says, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and you lie down, and when you rise. The content is the word of God. It's not just your thoughts on life, but the the where that happens is kind of anywhere you are with your kids. In the minivan or at the park or in the line at the grocery store or putting them to bed. All those places are places for education. The normal rhythms of day-to-day life. There's a quote that struck me this last week when I read about this passage. It says this, The man who gladly loves, loves with his whole being. The man who gladly loves, loves with his whole being. So that means parents who gladly love God, you won't want for opportunity. You'll have them. You will. You don't have to cram it into unnatural spaces that are, that are hard to make work. 
Gladly loving God in normal life with your kids watching is the best education. And Sunday-only Christianity doesn't transfer well. So that's how that translation happens. Now, it's important, it's funny, in verses 8 and 9, it, I, I believe Moses is speaking metaphorically about how near the Word of God should be to our families and how available it should be. It should be like these little uh, leather containers that people wore with little scrolls in them and on, on the doorposts of their house so you'd see it when you walk in and when you walk out every day. That's how near the Word of God should be to us. But People would, would go to great lengths to have these things attached to them and all this stuff, but, but it doesn't take into consideration that the greatest distance in the universe is between a person's head and their heart, right? And we know that you can tattoo Scripture all over your body, and it might not sink into your heart. And so a parent can sincerely love God in front of their children. They can diligently present God's truths in the van. They can lay around the house and talk about him. They can close each day thinking God's thoughts after him and provide the biblical lens to interpret the world. And it might not stick. Because you can't force your kids to find God lovely. They have to see that on their own. Parents are to do all that they can that's precisely the dilemma, that there are things that we can't do. There's a limit to that. So in applying this, when are your children learning God's word from you? Kids need to learn that in a way that helps them to look forward and backward, meaning this. They need to be taught things ahead of time so that they have a, a context and a frame of reference for when they come into certain situations. It's proactive teaching and instruction. They need to be able to look ahead. But there's also an element of education where you need to be able to look back with your kids and go, well, what what happened there? How did that work? Where do you see God at work in that? How does God's word apply to that? what just happened in the past? So our education of them needs to look forward and backward. You know, we can make all kinds of mistakes in this regard, and I've probably made all of them, right? One is you go overboard. So you're, you're the, the parent that manipulates your kid through fear, guilt, and shame, or through family pressure. 60-minute devotions, twice a day, be there or else kind of thing. And you just go overboard. You try to be the Holy Spirit, and you're a terrible Holy Spirit. And so you force, you go, you go overboard. The other mistake is being hands-off, Right? Or it's just the opposite. You can be apathetic. I just, I don't want to do it. Or I'm going to delegate or let the church do it or let the, the school do it or whatever. I don't want to dictate to kids my religious preference. I want to let them to choose that on their own. Why not is my question to that situation. Especially, you know, if you're persuaded there is only one true God, we need to direct our kids to him. We're willing to dictate things to our kids, what they eat where they sleep, what they watch, what websites they go to. We are are dictators over their lives. God-appointed, servant, humble dictators, I guess. Don't quote me on that, but you know what I mean. You're, you're, um, You're in a position to tell them what to do. What kind of friendship should get time and energy? We're always directing our kids. So why would we say, when it comes to the foundation of your worldview, I'm going to let you pick when I know what the truth is? We should direct our kids towards what we know to be true. So there's overboard, there's hands-off, then there's just assuming. The mistake of assuming. 
If your kid can quote the Bible, it doesn't mean they're a Christian. If your kid can keep certain sins less visible than others, it doesn't mean that they're a Christian. Parenting is evangelism. When your children are born, they're sinners. They're separate from the, the grace of God. They're his enemy. And so we cannot assume that. We must be diligent in, in preaching and teaching the gospel as biblical educators. I've never spoken to a person who's regretted making regular spiritual investments into the life of their family. So let us have the courage to overcome poor examples or the initial awkwardness and the fumbling steps, the seemingly worthless time of family worship or the fear of failure. We need to overcome those things by the grace of God. Let us resolve by God's grace to be different from much of the evangelical church and take responsibility for our homes by teaching them diligently. We need to do that. One of the great and inconvenient things about preaching is that your own life is affected. And this last year has been a real struggle for Bree and I to figure out how to do this with our, with our family and our home. Our kids are very different ages. We've underwent a lot of change or in different schools and different jobs. And, and gone are the days where we're all huddled around with a couple of toddlers, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Life is a lot more complicated than that. And it's been hard, and we're still wrestling with how to make this work. So I'm not saying this is a person who's just a, boy, 6 a.m., our six-member family. That is not the reality of our lives. But as I thought about, Lord, why did you have me preach this sermon of all sermons when we're struggling so much with this? And I, I really think the grace in that is that we're struggling. We're actually, we're, we're trying. We're struggling. We're not perfect at this, and we're tripping over ourselves all the time but there is a struggle because it is our desire that our kids would hear from us and we're not going to delegate this responsibility we're just not going to do that so we're going to struggle and keep struggling and figure it out as a family what would it be like if our church resolved to struggle corporately together to help one another and to pray for one another and to be active in the lives of each other so that our homes would be places of discipleship there's a great quote of an example, a man named Joel Beek, who just says this. He says, when my parents commemorated their 50th anniversary, all five of us children decided to express thanks to our father and mother for one thing without consulting each other. Remarkably, all five of us thanked our mother for her prayers, and all five of us thanked our father for his leadership of our Sunday evening family worship. My brother said, quote, Dad, the oldest memory I have is of tears streaming down your face as you taught us from Pilgrim's Progress on Sunday evenings how the Holy Spirit leads believers. At the age of three, God used you in family worship to convict me that Christianity was real. No matter how far I went astray in later years, I could never seriously question the reality of Christianity, and I want to thank you for that. Isn't that amazing? A compelling example, unable to deny the reality of God because of how active it was in the life of that person. Now, Donald Whitney also says, Family worship is not a time where children sit with their hands folded and cherubic looks on their faces in rapt attention to you talking about the Bible. Okay, that's not what it's like. If you've ever tried this, it's war. It just is. 
He tells an example of a guy named Senator Ben Sass who was talking about a time in family worship where their family dog came in from out of the yard and barfed up some animal that it had just eaten, like right in the middle of their family worship. And as you try to do this, it's, it's just not, it's not the hallmark picture, okay? It's just not. But that's okay, right? It's, it's again, you're growing oaks. You're growing oaks. Let's look at one last thing and we'll be wrapping up this morning. Look at chapter 6, verses 20 through 25. These last section of Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 through 25, I think, are the means of discipling children. There's a backdrop of grace behind each of these paragraphs. A life of worship creates curiosity in your kids. In verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of these testimonies and the statutes? He's basically asking, Mom, Dad, why do we have these rituals? Why aren't we like the other nations? What's the meaning? What's the basis for what, for what we do? Why do we do what we do? Now, what do you expect the parent to say? It's because we're Israelites, boy. It's because we're better than the other nations. Because I told you so. I mean, you could fill in half a dozen reasons why they do what they do. But look what he says. Isn't it interesting? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And he showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household. He tells the story of Exodus. Now why does he do that? If the question is, Dad, why do we abide by these laws? Why do we do what we do? Answer. Because God has acted in history. Because let me tell you what our God is like. We were slaves. And God intervened. He doesn't say, but it's because I told you, son. He says, it's because God is a God of grace. And God is our Savior. And God initiates salvation and breaks through our sin and our slavery and our life. And interrupts our trajectory to eternal separation from him. That's why we're doing this. God is a God of grace. That's why. That's why before the Ten Commandments are spoken, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm IDing myself so that when I give you my law, you understand the personal care with which that's given. I'm your Savior. I'm your Redeemer. God is a God of grace. That's the backdrop for parental instruction, isn't it? If we could just humbly say, kids, you have no idea what you and I deserve apart from Jesus. And you'll never guess what God did. You'll never guess. He became a man. And he broke through human history. And he was born in a stable. And he was a carpenter's kid. And he grew up and he was treated terribly. And he always obeyed his father. He always fulfilled the mission and he accomplished it by dying and rising again. Kids, you'll never guess. Isn't that different than you shouldn't lie because lying is bad? It's our God who's told us this. Our God and his grace is the foundation. So to just summarize this, if you remember nothing else, you might be thinking about your Mother's Day reservation. But one thing, okay, 
that we leave. Parenting can get really complicated. It's really blurry at times. I need regular reminders that are very simple. So here's my simple reminder to you. Keep it simple. Three words. Show, tell, pray. Show, tell, pray. We've seen in in chapter 6 that this God of grace expects us to live this out in front of our kids. Are we showing them a love for God? Chapter 6 also tells us we need to teach them. Are we telling them? Are we teaching them? And then finally, are we praying? Are we admitting that there is an obvious limitation to what we can do as parents? And you hit that ceiling and go, I've got to pray for God to open his or her eyes. Show them. So God doesn't call us to do anything that he hasn't already done. Many here don't have great role models for this. Many of you may not have parents around even today. Or you're grieving that today. It's really important that we all understand that we have the same example that we're working off. Our modeling for parenting is God. In Deuteronomy 1 through 11, he fights for Israel. He warns them. He shows them mercy. He speaks to them. He disciplines them. He does what he says he will do. He's jealous for them. He loves them because he's chosen them. He tests what's in their hearts. He doesn't give them what they deserve. Can you relate with God when he says, Oh, that they had such a mind as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might be well with them? Oh, if they could just know that my intentions are good. See, friends, you have a perfect heavenly father. You do. And you have a son who has been perfect in his submission to that father and demonstrates that. It says in Hebrews 5, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The son learned obedience with his perfect heavenly father. In fact, in Matthew 3 and 4, do you remember when Jesus is baptized and the father speaks audibly? This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. The Spirit leads Jesus off into the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil. And do you know what this submissive son does? What he refers to? Scripture, Deuteronomy 8 first, and Deuteronomy 6 the last two times. Jesus was the perfect son of this heavenly father. This is the picture of what it means to be a parent and what it means to be submissive to him. And all through that, the father could eventually offer him up as a sacrifice that he might, quote, become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. We have a model in our father and in the son. And this is why we want to finish this morning by celebrating communion together. Because we're going to do what Moses told us to do, which is to remember. And remembering stirs a love for God. So let me read to us out of 1 Corinthians 11, where Jesus actually says, do this in remembrance of me. It's kind of following on the heels of Moses. Here's what it says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're in a lot of different places when it comes to this whole issue of family discipleship. We all have a role, and we all have a heavenly father and a perfectly submissive son to look to. And so we're going to end by doing this together as a united family uh, of God. Um, This is a time for people who profess Christ as their Lord and Savior. You don't have to be from our church to participate. You can be from another church if you're a Christian and partake in this. If you're not a Christian or if you're under discipline of another church, we'd ask you to just respectfully abstain to preserve kind of the unity of of what this is about. Uh, But what we're going to do is we'll have some volunteers come forward on on either side, and we're going to, I'll pray for us here in a second, and you can just be thinking on the things that we've talked about, uh, and be thankful and remember what Christ has done uh, so that discipleship is even possible (laughs) uh, in family or outside of it. You can come forward and grab a piece of bread and Take a little cup, take it back to your seat, and we'll all partake of that together. Uh, If you're not able to physically come forward, uh, catch the attention of one of the servers. They'd love to serve you where you're at. We want no one to be left out of this for that reason. Okay? Um, Let's go ahead and uh, pray together, and then we'll uh, enter into this time of communion. Our Heavenly Father, we we praise you and thank you. You um, are worthy. God, you are holy. You are uh, wonderful. And you are worthy of our praise both here and in our homes. Uh, You're worthy of the desire to pass along knowledge uh, of you to the next generation. And we thank you for the ways that that's happening in kind of a traditional way and also in non-traditional ways. God, make us uh, receptive as a church and and helpful and aware of of those who, um, for whatever reason, are, are, are struggling with this, they're in a different situation and just need some, some of that supplemental help uh, from the body. Make us uh, a loving congregation who, who collectively has a burden to see the gospel uh, passed on to the next generation. And would you use this time, Lord? Use this time of communion to uh, encourage your people, uh, to solidify us under this desire to love you with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our might. God, that's the banner we want flying over our lives and over our kids' lives. So would you make that true of us as we enter into this time of remembrance? Thank you that you you force us to stop and remember. Uh, And may this just stir uh, love for you and for what you've accomplished uh, through the cross and through the empty tomb. Uh, We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.